Hey, you can stay standing, sorry. I never actually said to sit, but yeah. Uh, We're going to stand for the reading of the word this morning. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalm 119. We are wrapping up a series today called, Does God Want You to Be Happy? Does God want you to be happy? So this is week four, and we kind of run our series like the epistles, and that is uh, it's kind of heavy doctrinal or theological at the beginning and then practical at the end. And so uh, if you're showing up for the first time this week, you're getting the end of the series. Uh, And so what we've done the first three weeks is lay out a foundation doctrinally, theologically for the series. Does God want you to be happy? We answered the question Three weeks ago, yes, yes, a happy God wants you to be happy and gave you a gospel of happiness in order to secure it. Now, you might say, well, where did this term gospel of happiness came from? Well, it came from the Bible, the ESV translation in uh, the book of Isaiah, where it said one would come who would bring a good news of happiness And so we spent week one mostly debunking this horrible idea that God doesn't care about your happiness, that he only cares about your holiness. Now, God cares about both, your holiness and your happiness, and those things don't have to contradict each other in the Christian faith. We also talked about the idea that in the scriptures, uh, proper studying of words even uh, helps us understand that the word happiness and joy are pretty much the same thing in the scriptures. And when we begin to actually understand what the Bible is saying, this idea of happiness in Christ is all over the Bible. And so, yes, a happy God wants you to be happy and gave you a gospel of happiness in order to secure it. Now, sin, sin will destroy it, but forgiveness restores it, and the Spirit of God or the presence of God fills it. So that's where we started this series, and in that, I also kind of shared a testimony, that this is a part of my testimony, that in my late teens and early 20s, I was busy, I was working hard, I was accomplishing things, I was working at a church, and I was deeply unhappy, depressed, And I put my Bible up at one point on the shelf and said, if Christianity doesn't make me happy, then why should I do this? There's an innate desire, innate desire for in each human heart to be happy. And instead of looking at that as contradictory to the gospel, when we properly understand the gospel, we see how the gospel speaks to that place in our souls. And so I walked through and have been the steps that God used in my life to pull me out of this place of despair. Two weeks ago was the first step, having the right perspective. According to Colossians 3, that's a look up perspective, looking out, 
seeing eternity, not earth, seeing God's timing, not our timing, seeing Christ, not ourselves. And when we begin to have that right perspective, it gives a foundation of joy. Only with that right perspective can we see through certain things like tragedy, horrible moments in life. Can we look through those and say, yet there still can be joy because of the right perspective. And that begins to place joy at the bottom of our heart. But we want a happiness that overflows from the top. And so uh, last week, I talked about the next step, and that's the right people. That loneliness was actually the first problem in the Bible. Loneliness existed pre-sin, and Adam was alone, and it was not good. And what did God do to satisfy that problem? Did he tell Adam, hey, be holy, and then you'll be okay? Nope, Adam was actually already holy. What did God do? He gave him a person. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, when people were in despair, God would send them people, people. And so the right people in our lives is that next step, people that show us grace, people that help us carry the weight of life. So the right perspective, then the right people. And that brings us up to week three. And the proper ordering of things is essential. We can't just jump from, I'm not happy, to week four. We have to start in week one where we remind ourselves of this gospel of happiness because all Christian transformation comes out of the gospel. And so we root ourselves back in the gospel. Then we add the right perspective. Then we add the right people. And then we get to week four, the right plan. And so today what I want to talk about is the right plan. And let me tell you up front, the right plan is not your plan. The right plan is God's plan. So we're going to lay out God's plan in a couple areas of our lives. Where this talk or the motivation behind this talk, maybe the inspiration behind this talk is when I had arrived at that place where I had the right people in my life, I had the right perspective, yet I wasn't always happy I'm not saying we have to arrive at a place, by the way, that we're always happy, but I would prefer it more than the alternative. And so there would be these moments when I'd be like, okay, I'm not happy, uh, but I know there's joy in eternity and I've got these great friends. What are some of these things that tend to be stealing my joy or stealing my happiness in life? And so at some point in my life, this was about my mid-20s, I just started to identify some of these things that were happiness killers I sat down earlier this week to write down some of them. Here's a list of a couple that I came up with. Maybe you can connect with some of them. Sin. Sin steals joy. Kills happiness. Money or stress related to money. Kills happiness. Revenge or relational dysfunction. Family stuff that goes wrong. Waking up angry. We have a term for it, right? Negative thoughts. Self-doubt. Boredom. Lack of purpose, comparing myself to others. These were just a list of things that I began to identify in my life that even if I have the right perspective and even if I have the right people, these things still have a tendency to steal my joy. And if I want a happiness that overflows, not just one that'll get me to eternity, but one that's in the moment, the, the abundant life that Christ has promised, well, then I got to deal with these issues. And I, like many of you, have come up with many a plan to deal with these things. 
I'll tell you how good my plan works. Not well. Maybe your plan didn't either. Because I'd walk down my plan often in these and it wouldn't lead me to the joy that I know that I'm supposed to have in Christ. And one day I was reading, got to Psalm 119.1. I was using this very Bible right here. I got to Psalm 119.1 and it said this, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. And in some of my lowest moments, most despaired or depressed moments, I would just wake up and I'd say, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. And with zero joy, I would quote the verse about joy. Joyful people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Now, I can't remember how long it took, but eventually I just thought to myself, what if it's actually true? What if by following God's plan, it led to joy? What if just following God's plan led to happiness? Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Remember Psalm 1611, we used this earlier in our series. It says, you make known to me the path of life or the plan of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want that life. And the way you get there is by walking his path or by following his plan. But we like to change the plan. Don't change the plan. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. And so I looked into this and I said, okay, well, what if I just begin to apply this into a couple of areas of my life? The first one, sin. I mean, there was no greater uh, stealer of my happiness or joy than sin. And sometimes, right, this is little. Sometimes this is big. Sometimes some of us have lived in secret sin and it just stole our joy for years, Right? or public sin, and it stole our joy for years. Sin destroys joy. And sin had destroyed my joy for years. And I um, wanted to fight sin, and I wanted to stop sinning, and I you know, wanted to get away from that because I knew sin was bad. And I had some good motivators for not sinning. Maybe you've heard some of them. God is holy. Be holy like God is holy. Don't sin. And I'd sin. Or this one. Every time you sin, it's like picking up the nail and driving it through Jesus's hand again. Do you want to kill Jesus? Don't sin. Or in some environments, just so you know, if you sin and then you get in a car accident and you haven't repented, you're going to hell. Don't sin. That one would work for like a day. And there are all these motivators that we would create to to help us not sinning. And if I'm honest, none of them helped. None of them worked. 
And then I read Psalm 19.1, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. And I thought, well, if you just kind of like reverse the logic that's going on here, if I want joy, then I shouldn't sin. And so if my motivator is joy and sin is stopping it, then when I'm on the other side of sin, I just shouldn't sin because then I'm going to be happy on the other side. And guess what? That actually began to work. Let me say it this way, just to offend some of you enough. Joy and my desire for it became a greater, uh, a greater assistance in not sinning than desiring or dwelling on God's holiness ever did for me. I'm just being honest. And maybe that's actually the way it's supposed to be. Maybe a happy God really does want you to be happy and gave you a gospel of happiness to secure it. And maybe that happy God knows that sin always destroys it. And so I just, I got tempted with sin, whatever one it was, fill in the blank. Just said, well, I just know I'm going to be angry or unhappy on the other side. Why would I do this? It's a simple logic. And it worked. This is actually in the scriptures, by the way. 1 Samuel 12, 21. This is the ESV. I'm using the NLT this morning. 1 Samuel 12, 21. The prophet Samuel says this. As soon as I find it. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. That phrase, turn aside, if you've grown up in church at all, you know that kind of is like a, it's a term that's connected to our term repent. And so this is talking about the opposite of repentance. It's talking about a turn to, this, to sin, to the lie of sin. And what the author, or what Samuel the prophet was saying here in this moment is he's saying, you keep running back to the exact same things and they don't deliver what you want. Why do you keep turning to them? Listen, if there was a vending machine in your office and every time you put in money and hit the button, it didn't give you your candy bar, you'd stop putting money in there. Yet, and in your quest for happiness, we often run back to all of the things that do not deliver anything. They don't profit. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. The very next line is this. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. This brings up uh, uh, another element of this, by the way, because remember earlier when I talked about skipping steps? Sometimes in Christianity, we do this well-meaning, but we'll have somebody who's over here, they're like, listen, I don't have any joy. I'm very unhappy. I don't understand why I'm not. And well-meaning people will say, well, are you sinning? Stop. And, and they're not giving bad advice, but if we don't properly lay out the gospel again and build people in the right way, then where this can get to is people who are keeping the laws, but they're not doing what verse two says, which is seeking God with all their heart. It is seeking and keeping that produces this. When we just throw God's instructions on people who haven't yet developed a heart of the gospel, then this just keep, this feels like joyless obedience. That's nowhere in the scripture. 
in the scripture is a joy-filled obedience because you're both seeking the heart of God and then you're keeping his laws. It's why David writes over and over, I delight in the law of the Lord. And if you've grown up in, an, um, in a religious environment, you read that and you go, I don't know about delighting in the law of the Lord, but I do it. Well, when the seeking and the keeping come on the same path, then we can't say, yeah, I delight in the law of the Lord. Why? Because every time I follow it, it produces joy on the other side, it produces happiness on the other side. When we seek and we keep. So joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord and who obey his laws. So when it comes to sin, uh, what's God's instruction? Don't. But the proper motivation helps. And so the joy that I know that God wants for me became a great motivator for me to not. And then I just had to remind myself of the other stuff that the scripture says about sin. That in Christ, I'm free from its power. That I'm a new creation. That I've been made righteous. That sin has no stronghold over me anymore. That I should crucify my sinful desire, which is exactly what I wanted to do all along. And then when I understood the proper motivation, those things could begin to happen. And now, I, when I'm tempted with sin, I just go, well, do I want to be unhappy? Nope. Well, I should avoid this. But friend, don't change the plan. See, what we like to do is say, okay, I get that, and there are certain sins that are really bad, but other sins aren't that bad, or other sins are outdated, or this or that, and so I'm going to change the plan. And then what we do is we change God's plan, and we try to make the Bible what we want it to be instead of what it is, and it becomes our own plan, and that's just going to lead to the same unhappiness. Don't change the plan. Here's the plan. Don't change it. So that was the first one. And so... my, you know, mid-20s brain was like, well, it worked when it came to sin. Maybe it could work to these other things that steal my joy. And so I just started kind of working through a list of things that had a tendency of stealing my joy. So then we got to the next one. I told you last week, I actually had a sticky note that said, become a billionaire when I went off to college. I wanted to be rich. And so in my, even in my mid-20s and, and early 20s, money was a great cause of stress in my life. My, my craving for it, my desire for it, uh, the, the work I would put into earning it or getting it or coming up with ideas, it, it's what led into the, the gambling addi- online gambling addiction I talked about. And money was a source of stress for me. Now, I know some of you can relate to this. Statistics are statistics for a reason. The money becomes one of the greatest sources of stealing joy. Something as silly as money is the second reason or top reason for divorce. Something as silly as money causes families to stop talking to each other. Something as silly as money makes people lie and cheat and steal. Money causing so much despair and unhappiness and stress. 
So I remember a moment I was at church and I was in the middle of my um, online gambling addiction and, and I'm, I'm at church and I would never go below $150 in my bank account because if it did, then I um, might need help. And if I needed help, then I would have to ask for help and then somebody would know that I needed help, right? So even in my sin, I was trying to be wise. And so I'm at church and there's this campaign going on. And their pastor was sharing these exciting things. And, and I'm listening, and I'm thinking, man, I want to be a part of that. And someday when I'm rich, I will be a part of that. But I was stressed and worried about money right then. And so I went home that day with $653 in my bank account after hearing that. And I wrote a check for $500, which at like early 20s was like the largest check I think I'd ever written for anything let alone to give it away. And I wrote that check that day. And I never, never played online poker again after that day. In a moment, God freed me from something. Why? Because I began to walk his plan. So then in my early 20s, I thought, okay, well, this, this is like doing something in my heart, this, this generosity. And, and so, so what's next, God? How do I follow your plan? Because as I look out at life and as I look at a lot of people, there seem to be a lot of human beings that are stressed about money. I mean, Dave Ramsey has built an entire empire out of this. There's a lot of people where it seems like this thing right here is stealing all of their joy. So God, what's your plan? If joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord, what's your plan for this? And so I started asking people that I respected who didn't seem to be stressed about money. By the way, some of the people who look like they're not stressed about money are really, really stressed about money. But I found some. One of them was my boss at the time. He was giving 26% of his salary to church and driving like a 1997 Cavalier. And I was like, but you don't seem stressed about this at all. Will you show me how to do this? And so learned what the Bible says about it, what God's plan was. And the first step in there was to give. To give. And 1 Corinthians, it says it this way, to set aside some at the beginning of every week to give as worship. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to learn to give because I don't want to be stressed about money the rest of my life. Now, by the way, some of you are already feeling uncomfortable and you also want to live in the stress of money the rest of your life. Those two things are going to work together. There's God's plan and there's your plan and your plan is done. And God's plan is awesome because on the other side of God's plan is not worrying about money again. And that's way better. You think you got your plan. You can't even go to Chipotle. So I said, all right, well, I'm just going to give first. And so I just started giving 10% of everything I earned. And for 15 years, that's what I've been doing. And that's what my wife and I have been doing. And we just give 10% of everything we make because it's God's plan. Easy. Second thing I learned in is it's not just giving the first 10%, it's also the 90%. I'm spending it intelligently. And so not buying because I want to impress other people, not um, being foolish with the 90%, but having a, a budget and staying out of debt and just doing uh, pretty wise things. And, and so that was the next step. And then the third thing you learn as you read the Bible about money is that you should save for the future. And so you should just put some aside for the future. 
And so then I just started doing that. And guess what? It works. It works. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but you're a pastor, so you're rich. You're wrong. <laughs> I've said this before and I don't really care. I make less money now than I did when I was 25. That's 10 years ago. And guess what? I worry less about money now than I did when I was 25 because I'm walking God's plan. And it's way better. It's way better. So then it worked for money. By the way, just to make this a little more practical, the other couple months ago, I went on vacation and I got a call at 8.05 on the first day of vacation, which is never like a good thing. It was from my dad. And I was like, oh man, what's going on? So he calls me and said, hey, you know how you wanted me to take the lawnmower to uh, the mini repair shop? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, it was in the back of your van. I said, yep. He said, well, then it wasn't in the back of your van. <laughs> what happened? Well, it exploded through the back window. Okay. This was five minutes into my vacation. It's like, okay. Took a deep breath and I was like, don't worry about it when I get home. This entire little lawnmower glass explosion thing cost 1200 bucks. okay? If I didn't follow God's plan with money, one, my vacation would have been absolutely ruined. Two, I probably would have gotten angry at my dad. Not that it was his fault, but I would have. I probably would have gotten very angry at my wife in the moment and ruined our vacation. This is one example of stuff that happens every single day in people's lives. And when you handle money the right way, God's way, you don't let it steal your joy anymore. You don't make it the source of division in your marriage. You don't use it as a reason uh, to lord over your, your kids. Just handle it God's way. Okay. Moving on. Number three. Oh, by the way, um, because I, I'm sick of stealing, seeing money steal people's joy, we're going to do a class on money on the 14th of October. It's a Wednesday night. It's free, 7 to 8.30, and in 90 minutes, I'm not really going to preach. I'm just going to lay out God's plan really clearly, really clearly. I'm just going to lay it out and um, help you walk in freedom because we exist to help all people experience redemption and live in freedom. And if I don't help you walk in freedom in this way by following God's plan, then I'm not doing my job. And I want to do my job. Okay, number three. Third thing that started hitting me. Revenge, relational dysfunction, and we'll call it family stuff. So remember the kind of the hypothetical question here is, what are the things that steal my joy? Revenge, relational dysfunction, and things going on in family. Verse three of Psalm 119 says this, they do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his, God's paths. And when it came to revenge and it came to relational dynamics, I had a tendency to compromise with evil. And here's what I mean by that. I would seek revenge instead of letting it be God's. It's compromise with evil. I would withhold forgiveness instead of offering it, which is a compromise with evil. I would let bitterness control me, which is a compromise with evil. And every time I did, guess where it didn't lead? 
joy or happiness. Some of you, you carry a fog over your mind and your hearts. It's, a, it's like always present with you. And it's just something that's just eating away at your joy, eating away at your joy, and your joy will never be restored until that moment of forgiveness. No matter how much you serve, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you read your Bible, the joy will not be restored until you forgive. Because joyful people have integrity and follow the instructions of the Lord. And so... Applying that same principle, then I got to Colossians chapter 3. I preached on the beginning of this chapter um, a couple weeks ago, but uh, the end of the chapter gives some very helpful stuff too. Colossians chapter 3 says this about our relational dynamics. These are the instructions of the Lord. Since God chose you to be holy people, he loves, you must clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The first step here is wearing the proper clothes. Wearing the proper clothes in our context of our relationships with other people. And what do those look like? Being tenderhearted. Showing mercy. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness and patience. And by wearing the right clothes in your relational dynamic with other people, You'll be following the instructions of the Lord and it will begin to restore the joy. How much would the relationship change if you showed humility instead of pride? If you were just kind instead of mean? Think about all the times in your life when those relational blow-ups stole your joy for months and had you been wearing the proper clothing like this is talking about, it may have never happened. Second tip it gives is this. Make allowance for each other's faults. Make allowance for each other's faults. I'm going to give you an example on this one. Tom, stand up. This is Tom, everybody. All right. Tom is one of our elders, by the way. You'll get to meet him tonight if you come to the Next Steps class. Okay, so Tom is a diesel mechanic. He's a pretty strong dude. All right, so Tom, I need you to pretend like you're boxing. All right, and just you, stay there. Okay, all right, make me nervous. And just start punching the air a little bit. Okay, so Tom is punching the air. Okay, here's the deal. Tom is punching, he's punching, he's punching. He, you can punch harder than that. Okay, all right, Tom is punching. Oh, boy. Okay, now, this is actually good. Okay, so as Tom is punching right there, guess how much that is affecting my mood? Not at all. It doesn't affect me. It's not doing anything to me. I'm not angry at Matt. At Matt. I'm not angry at Tom. I'm not mad. You can punch one more time, Tom. Hard as you can. Okay, boom, right there. Okay, doesn't do anything to me. Okay, now, if I was standing right in front of Tom and Tom kept doing that, I would only have two options. Get mad or punch back or be hurt. But because there was space between his fist and my face, we're still good. Make allowance for each other's faults. If you're following this, when there's no space between you and somebody else and the mistakes that they make, when they make those mistakes, you can only be hurt or fight back. It is the space of making allowance for their faults that allows you to properly respond to those faults. 
Some of you. I can say that because I've done this. There's no allowance for someone's faults. And so every time they mess up, you feel like they're just punching you in the face. And every time they do, then you fight back or you punch back. Or you think, why are you hurting me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you hurting me? And it steals all the joy. It steals all the joy. Making allowance for people's faults allows a space to be created there to show grace and hopefully a grace that will then actually draw that person to you. Now, I know these faults sometimes hurt deeply. I know that these um, faults sometimes feel like they're repeated offenses. And I know that we have to show wisdom in this and there's parenting is still hard and all of these things. But making allowance for people's faults allows us to continue on in the joy that God wants us to have in relational dynamics. The very next line in this is forgive anyone who offends you. I like to compromise with evil on this one. Here's how I do it. They don't deserve forgiveness. They haven't asked for forgiveness. They're not worthy of forgiveness. Once they say, I'm sorry, then I'll say, I'm sorry. We compromise with evil on this one, and the scripture's clear. Forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone who offends you. And Paul, just to drive the point home, goes, remember, God forgave you just roots it in the gospel. When, when Paul says, remember, God forgave you, I think what he's anticipating is all of the excuses you and I will make. And then he reminds us that all of the excuses that we make, Christ could have made toward us, but he didn't. And he forgave us anyway. Joyful are people who follow the relational instructions of the Lord. Happy are you when you forgive. Happy are you when you make allowance for people's faults. Happy are you when you wear the right clothing as it relates to your relationships. Number four, waking up angry, negative thoughts, self-doubt. This was something else that stole my joy. And maybe you feel like, I just can't be happy. There's so much going on up here. I just wake up every day in a bad mood and I've tried to be happy or make myself happy or control all of this and I just, I can't do it. And so sometimes I would wake up and I would think myself a victim to the mood that I woke up in. And so if I woke up in a bad mood, then it was gonna be a bad day. Or... What the enemy likes to do is he likes to plant a lie in our minds that there is a fault, there's, a, there's a, uh, um, a limitation in us that prohibits our ability to be happy. If you feel that sense that, I want you to know that's a lie from the enemy. It's a lie. So Psalm 119.5 says it this way. It says, oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. 
Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. Inconsistent action always leads to inconsistent results. Consistent action leads to consistent results. And so in this text right here, verse 5, says that it is the consistency of reflecting his decrees that produces the transformation within us. And so I'll just tell you what I had to do. I had to change my consistent actions. I had to change what I did consistently so those negative thinking, those self-doubts, and being a victim to however I woke up wouldn't be the thing that controlled my day. And so I began to change my consistent actions. Uh, Psalm 119, by the way, says it this way, or the other part of Psalm 119, verse 35 says it this way, make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. David was tapping into something here. He knew that if I walk along this proper path, then when I get to the end of it, that is where happiness will be found. Psalm 119.5, consistent actions, consistently following his decree. So I said, okay, God, what do you want me to consistently do? What's the plan here for my consistent action to reflect you, to begin to change this thing that's stealing my joy? I've actually preached on this a couple of years ago. We called it Own the Morning. But it's actually like a a doctrine of understanding the proper starting of a day. And so for me, I had to come up with a plan for this. A plan that was God's plan, not my plan. And here's what it was. And I've done this now almost every day for 10 years. I call it three by seven. This is how I start every day. Seven minutes of prayer, seven minutes of reading and journaling, seven minutes of reading another book that informs my faith. 21 minutes. I've spent every, almost every single day doing those three things for 21 minutes. (laughs) By the way, it's the only way I know how not to become a horrible person. And when I was single, it was three by 15. When I got married, it was three by 10. When I had my first kid, it was three by eight. Now we're down to three by seven. Oh, but I need it. And listen, it's not just the action of what I'm I'm doing. It's not just the action of what I'm doing, uh, like like the actual physical action. It's also what's going on in the mind and the heart because there's three other things that are going on during that time. The first thing is this. I am choosing joy for that day. And so I'm waking up, and regardless of my circumstances, I'm reminding myself that today his mercies are new every morning and that joy comes in the morning, and I am believing that to be true. The second thing that I'm doing in that moment is to correct any negative thinking. And so I woke up this morning, and I didn't feel like coming. And that doesn't actually happen very often where I'm not excited about a Sunday morning. And so I'm waking up this morning and I'm sensing that. And so I went down to get into my seven minutes of prayer. And I was like, all right, God, I know I'm not a victim to what I woke up in this morning. And so I'm praying against it and I'm going to walk in joy today. I'm going to fix this negative thinking and I'm going to go do my job and tell these people how to walk in freedom. Now, the other option is just to give into that and to walk in the rest of your day without the joy that God has for you. 
third thing I'm doing there is this. I'm centering my identity back on the gospel. And so every morning I'm reminding myself, man, I was dead in sin and then Jesus made me alive. I'm reminding myself of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where I was dead in sin, but God being rich in mercy. I was grace poured out to me. And then I'm going to root myself back in the gospel. And by the time those 21 minutes are over, man, I walk out like a different person. And I'm ready to go. And I can tell you what 10 years of it has done. And it's transformed me. I don't know what the next 10 years will bring. I'm excited. I can tell you this. The verse says, consistently. So some of you might take a Snapchat. No, Snapchat's dead, isn't it? Some of you might take an Instagram photo of your three by seven tomorrow morning. And it'll be cute. I don't get on Instagram, otherwise I'd like it. But if the only time you do your devotion is when you snap a picture of it, it's probably not consistent enough. Consistency. Every day, every day, every day, and every day as you do it, God chips away and God changes and God transforms. By the way, send out an email here of these things. Because every morning I want you choosing joy. Every morning I want you correcting negative thinking from the enemy. And every day I want you centering your identity back on the gospel of Christ and who you are in him. And these are just four things. I mean, I just, I picked four things. And I know there's other things that come and they steal our joy and they come in and they ruin things. And, uh, but, but, this morning, what I wanted to do was give you a, 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 a paradigm for how to attack the things that steal joy in your life. You can keep it running your plan, or you can decide on God's plan. Psalm 143, Psalm 143, then moves this a step further. Because in Psalm 143, then, it's not just telling us what to do. It's telling us how it happens. Psalm 143, 7 says this, Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. My sadness deepens. My lack of happiness deepens. That's what David is saying. Saying, Lord, you got to come and you got to rescue me because I'm not happy. And if I'm supposed to be happy, I'm not happy. My depression is getting worse. It's getting deeper. It's settling in. Just come quickly. And he says this, don't turn away from me or I will die. Maybe you've been at a place in life that felt that empty, where you're like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how anything else comes after this. I just know that if you leave, like if I don't have this, then I don't know how I'm going to make it. Maybe you've had those moments when, when, when you were doing the morning devotion and you were opening up, but the only thing that hit that scripture or hit that journal were tears. Tears of hurt, tears of betrayal, uh, tears of, uh, of mistakes from the past coming back up, and you felt like him. You're like, it, it feels like it's just getting worse, and I don't know where joy or when joy, or you've come through a season, and you thought, I'm never going to be happy again. This is never going to come back. 
And then in verse 8, David gives us the answer. He gives us the motivation, the only motivation, and the only power that can ever take us out of that place when he says this, let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, each morning. Now, I just talked about a three by seven, and some of you, you may be way better than I am. You may be way stronger in your faith. You may be way more like in tune with God, but I know when it comes to me, like if I don't have it every single morning, if I don't have the gospel just planted again, and in my heart every morning that I have no idea where that day is going to go. But I know that I have felt like David where I said, Lord, every day when I wake up, I need to be reminded that I was dead in sin and that you came up with a plan. And when the enemy tried to destroy it, you did not let the plan change. You went to the cross and you secured my redemption and you forgave my sin so that I might be able to walk in joy. And so every morning, I'm going to go back to the gospel. And I'm going to swim in his love. And let it change me. He says, for I am trusting you. What else is David saying there? Then he's saying, I'm going to do your plan, not my plan. Show me where to walk. Show me the plan. I give myself to you. This is the only way to live if you want the happiness that God has for you. Psalm 119, verse 35. Make me walk along the path of your commands. Make me walk along the path of your commands. I think that's David's confession of like, God, sometimes my heart, my flesh, it just wants to go away. Just make me do it. For that is where my happiness is found. I have this trail that I love to walk. And every time I walk it, it leads down to the water. And then I go the next day and I walk it and it leads down to the water. And then it becomes winter and I stop walking and I get to springtime and I walk the path again and it leads down to the water. Every time I walk the path, it leads down to the water. Every time you walk your plan, it's going to lead exactly where you're at right now. But every time that you walk God's plan, that is where your happiness will be found. Don't change the plan. Don't compromise the plan. Don't give sin an inch in your life. Don't think you've got money figured out better than God. Don't compromise with evil and who you're going to forgive and who you're not. Don't let negative thinking own your day. Don't change the plan. When you walk the plan, that's where your happiness will be found. change the plan. A happy God wants you to be happy. He gave you a gospel of happiness to secure it. And he gave you a plan. He gave you a plan to walk. And we want to help you walk it here. That's why we'll do the class. That's why we do everything we do. We want to help you walk that plan. Will you pray with me? Father, I can imagine for some here, 
It almost seems like, like a dream to walk in happiness. Like something that's so far out of reach. Lord, the truth is, if we keep walking our own plan, it is out of reach because it's constantly moving and we'll never arrive there. But when we walk your plan, you lead us to it. So Father, your words are absolute in scripture. So I pray for each of my friends here that as they walk your plan, there their happiness would be found. I pray that you would give courage and strength to walk away or out of sin wisdom to follow your plan in all of these other ways. And Jesus, every morning, remind us of your unfailing love, your gospel, for it is the only way we can do this. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.